This evening, I'm going to talk about the four great vows. I'm sure most of you have come across these, especially if you have been in any kind of Zen Buddhist uh, setting. They're often chanted as part of the of the evening and morning ritual, often in Japanese. What they say, and I've put this translation together from a, a couple of versions I've found, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, afflictions are endless, I vow to relinquish them. Dharma gates are infinite. I vow to pass through them. The way of the Buddha, I vow to practice it. Now these take the place in in Zen Buddhism of the rather more elaborate um, bodhisattva vows, of which, depending on whether you're in the Chinese or the Tibetan tradition, uh, run to 18, 48, 50. This is kind of a condensation of that um, commitment that we find throughout Mahayana Buddhism whereby the practice one does is seen to be not something just for one's own sake, but has as its goal the, the welfare of all beings. Now, in some respects, this particular, this particular version of four and this is perhaps the reason or one of the reasons why it's so characteristic of Zen Buddhism is that they somehow highlight the impossibility of such a task. There's a kind of uh, conflict or paradox built in to the whole vow that one takes. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Well, literally, it's unlikely that you'll ever get to do that. If there are millions upon millions upon billions of sentient beings, and you only have at most 50 years to go, in this life at least, you're not going to make much headway. Afflictions are endless, I vow to relinquish them. How can you relinquish something that has no end? Dharma gates are infinite, I vow to pass through them. Well, then surely you'll be doing that forever. The only one that is somehow more feasible is the last one, the way of the Buddha, I vow to practice it. And that, in a sense, I think, 
uh, gives us a sort of a benchmark of, of a certain realism. But then when we ask, well, what is this Buddha way? We find that it entails saving all beings, relinquishing all afflictions, and entering or passing through infinite Dharma gates. I rather like the, um, the impossibility of the task or the apparent impossibility of the task. It sets us up against the, the overwhelming uh, vastness of the universe, of life itself, and we somehow pit ourselves against that in an attempt to make it into a better place. And yet at some level, maybe the level of the, of the realistic person on the street, it all looks rather hopeless. But we do it nonetheless. It's similar perhaps to this question that we're asking. What is this? And then we're suggesting that actually it's an impossible question. That even Huai Zhang who spent eight years struggling with it, in the end concluded that to say it's like something misses the point. And so whether it be a koan, a question, or whether it be a vow, in both cases we're confronted with something that seems to be almost impossible, or perhaps in its very nature not realizable in the conventional sense that we might normally expect questions to be answered or vows to be fulfilled. And I think this throws us back once again um, on the sheer strangeness and improbability of our being here at all. That there's something rather um, excessive about our, our condition here, excessive in the sense that we can't really pin down what we're doing to any finite concepts, to anything that we can neatly define, human life and its mystery and the world's mystery seem to exceed any capacity for clear-cut representation. And yet... We spend our whole lives talking and thinking. Even Zen Buddhist masters who are supposedly aware of this also spend their whole lives talking and thinking. Now this first vow, beings are numberless, I vow to save them, I vow to save them all, it sometimes says, this starts, I feel, with an awareness of the suffering of the world. Why would you want to save numberless beings? Presumably because at some level you cannot uh, accept, you cannot tolerate the fact that there is so much distress and so much frustration and pain 
and sheer unfairness in the world we live in, whether we think of that as physical illness or mental illness or just the sheer ravages of a body, a mind breaking down as they get older or the fact that no matter how much we may yearn to live and to exist, in the end we will be condemned to die. And there's nothing much we can do about that. And we only nowadays have to pick up a newspaper or switch on the TV to realize that the extent of human suffering far exceeds our own small circle of acquaintances or friends and family, and there's plenty of suffering going on there. And yet when we look around the world, not only in the human realm, but amongst animals, amongst birds and insects and other forms of life, we find likewise an overwhelming sense of um, of suffering. And having confronted that suffering, we now make this vow that although it is numberless, those who suffer, I'm going to save them. Sometimes the text says, um, I vow to liberate them. Um, I prefer the word save. Uh, It suggests, uh, let's say, a person drowning or a person in great distress or, or in great crisis, being able to somehow do something about it. Perhaps we could say to deliver them from that pain or to liberate them from that uh, misfortune that, that they're undergoing. But what does it really mean when we, as Zen Buddhists perhaps, religiously recite this uh, vow on a daily basis? What does that actually mean? What do you, how does that actually make a difference to what you then do for the rest of the day? Or is it just some kind of nice Buddhist um, ritualistic uh, commitment? For me, it has to do with being um, open to and, if possible, not shying away from uh, the suffering that... Um, confronts me on a daily basis. And I don't mean here just the suffering of, of others, others who are way beyond my immediate environment. But in a sense, this sense of suffering starts right at home with oneself. It says, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And you are one of those numberless beings. You're not excluded. We're not saying beings are numberless. I vow to save them all except me. Arguably, this whole uh, process of of recognizing suffering has to start with the recognition of one's own 
And that can be, in some senses, fairly minor. The discomforts of the body, the anxieties that might beset us as we go through our day, or it may be a serious and painful illness of some kind, or it might have a more existential dimension, a sense of dread, a sense of anxiety or fear in the face of aging, in the face of sickness, in the face of our own mortality. And we really can only, I think, begin to empathize with with the suffering of others if we are somehow able to be totally open to it within ourselves in a non-sentimental way. And sitting, doing sitting meditation, doing walking meditation, putting ourselves into a regime such as this, very often um, seems to magnify the, the edge of our own peculiar disquiet and ill at easeness, or sometimes simply uh, the sheer pain of sitting, the difficulty involved there, the confrontation with this uh, vulnerable and fragile and uncertain creature who is sitting on a cushion and asking itself, What is this? I think in many ways the the question, what is this, is in fact an opening to the, um, the totality of our human condition. Of course, there are times, maybe when we're on retreat, maybe when we're just in the everyday course of things, in which we're perfectly happy. Um, we may even experience a great sense of joy and well-being. And I hope that is the case. That makes this vow all the easier to accomplish. But at the same time, we're also aware that even the most rapturous experience is going to fade. It's going to turn into its opposite. It's going to be replaced by discomfort or depression whatever it might be, that life is not something that we can realistically expect uh, to be constant, particularly something as, as ephemeral as, as happiness. The second vow, afflictions are endless... I vow to relinquish them. Now, why does this particular vow come next? In fact, this raises the question, why are these four vows listed in the order they are? Is it just accidental? Someone in India or China a long time ago threw in four bits of paper to a hat and pulled them out. Number one. Beings are numberless. Number two. I don't think they are listed accidentally in that order. Number two, 
afflictions are endless, is in a way an acknowledgement of um, what it is that prevents us from saving all beings, including ourselves. Because we spend so much of our time not doing anything remotely similar to that, we spend our time indulging in the various afflictions that beset us. Now the word affliction, um, I'm translating for the original term which is probably, I don't have the Chinese text, it's probably the word kilesha or kilesa in Pali. And kilesha is sometimes translated as defilement, sometimes it's translated as passion. Um, I prefer translating it as affliction. Now a kilesha is um, defined in different ways. One way of defining it is that it's anything that arises in the mind that causes us to be disturbed, that causes us to be rattled, that causes us to lose our, our balance, our equanimity. So something like a strong aversion or a strong desire or a strong feeling of, of anxiety or fear when these occur, they tend to upset us. They tend to afflict us in a certain way. And whatever poise and focus we might have had is to some extent shaken. And in doing so, in being so shaken, it's very difficult to focus our resolve. We become, as it were, taken over by that particular emotion or thought or feeling, such that whatever we were doing before, whether it was mindfully doing the washing up, or whether it was mindfully sitting on a cushion, it somehow becomes interrupted. And we get carried off by associated thoughts, and stories, and worries, and memories. And what was once calm, becomes very turbulent and shaky. But we can also think of, of affliction, kilesha, um, as that which obstructs us, that which somehow blocks and hinders us. And again, we're talking about the same range of problems. Um, when we find ourselves caught in the grip of a fear or in the grip of um, some uh, incessant sexual fantasy, we're somehow stuck. We, it's, we find it quite difficult to, to break the hold of that, of that train of thought or that powerful emotion. It takes us round and round and round. It keeps coming back. Very difficult to shake it off. And sometimes, in fact, the more you try to shake it off, a bit like a, you know, a dog that's bitten you, uh, it actually seems to revel in just biting a bit harder. And so the afflictions, I think, are those, um, those states we get into 
and it becomes particularly vivid when you sit a retreat, when you've got nothing else to do, no ways to sort of go off and do something else, is that very often we find ourselves in the grip of some uh, emotional or mental affliction. And we struggle with that. And we get frustrated by it. Or we just try to sit and watch it. Which is often the most effective way of, of allowing it to work itself out. But nonetheless, I think all of us are probably aware that there is something somewhat endless about this process. Afflictions are endless. One may have been meditating and practicing Buddhism for 20 or 30 years, and still you can find yourself you know, in another turbulent, uh, frustrated, neurotic state of mind. And part of the problem with these afflictions is that we don't choose to have them. We don't, we don't sit on the cushion and then we think, hmm, maybe I'll feel, I think, I think I'd like to feel angry now. <laughs> it, it's the, the, the anger or the lust or whatever it is um, breaks in without our sometimes even being aware of that. That's one of the reasons why these afflictions are so problematic because we, they kind of have their own autonomy. They, they interrupt. They break in. They start talking to us. A little voice pipes up. And the Buddha describes this um, in, a, in a metaphoric way as the demonic, as Mara. And you have all these stories in the canon where the Buddha's sitting down doing his Buddha thing. And then it says, And Mara came up to him and said. And this rather ghostly, tricksterish spirit figure appears on the stage and starts talking to the Buddha. Now, I don't believe in a world in which spirits descend from the heavens and start talking to me. Nowadays, I think we would understand this psychologically because I'm quite aware of how when I'm perfectly content sitting on my bottom, watching my breath or something, that suddenly it's as though someone has entered into that space and struck up a conversation. But of course it's just another element of my own psyche that has invaded that tranquil space. Now the problem... Um, in the early tradition uh, with Mara is that Mara is what limits us. Mara is what somehow keeps us stuck in a situation from which there appears to be no obvious exit. It's a, a weak law situation. And instead of being able to make any kind of movement or any kind of development... We, we kind of feel that we're just going round in circles, that we're kind of trapped, we're kind of stuck, frustrated. And of course, sometimes the problem evaporates as suddenly as it occurred, and we find ourselves open once more, um, in a flow again, and then it slams shut. So... The vow is to recognize that although these 
afflictions may be endless, I vow to relinquish them. Relinquish or abandon is the word that's usually used. I sort of prefer the idea of let go. I vow to let go of them. Uh, Relinquishment or abandonment suggests that we somehow cast them aside. I don't think that's actually possible. I think the most we can hope for is to find a way of being where we almost welcome them, don't resist them, but don't give in to them either, but rather just notice them play their way out. In other words, we become free and independent from them. And that, I think, leads quite logically, almost organically, into the next one. Dharma gates are infinite. I vow to pass through them. Now, what is a Dharma gate? I think this is an expression that we only really find in the Chinese tradition. And particularly if you go to a temple in China or Japan, one of the things that you often notice when you're walking up the path that's leading to the temple is there'll be a great big gate, um, a gateway, no door there, just two standing pillars surmounted by another wooden or stone uh, top. And you pass through that gate in order to approach the temple. Sometimes pass through several gates. Perhaps the very earliest example of that are the beautiful gateways at Sanchi, one of the 3rd century BC stupa in uh, North India near Bhopal, where again you have these wonderful gates which don't have doors, they're not meant to keep you out, but rather they are gateways through which you go to reach the sacred space of the stupa at the center. So the idea of a gate is that um, we enter through something in order to arrive at a new situation. There's a sense of, uh, of transcending something and passing through a moment, a time, and we come out the other end having achieved or having moved on from where we were before. Now, Dharma gates are sometimes interpreted to simply mean all of the different teachings of the Buddha, where Dharma just means teaching. And I think the more rather the more sort of orthodox account of this would be that you vow, as it were, to master all the teachings of the Buddha. Um, that to me has a rather,ly rather overly scholarly ring to it. Um, And it suggests that the practice we do largely has to do with mastering the intricacies of Buddhist thought and practice. But if we take the word dharma in a wider sense, which just means things, then I think dharma gates are infinite because there are infinite situations in life that we can, as it were, penetrate and come through the other side wiser or more compassionate than when we started. 
In other words, they, they are gates that have been... Uh, there are situations that we uh, are open to and they themselves have the possibility of openness so that they can be moments of insight or, or transformation. And we come through somehow transformed. Now this is a metaphor that runs through a lot of the Zen literature. Uh, one famous example is of a monk and his uh, student walking through a forest. And um, the student um, asks the, the monk, um, how do I enter the great way? And the monk says, do you hear that, that waterfall over there? And the student says, yes. And then the monk says, right there. So the great way, rather than being a rather pompous Buddhist concept, becomes simply a metaphor for uh, any moment. That if you can attend to it in a non-habitual, non, let's say, egotistic way, non-neurotic way, it can become a moment or an occasion for understanding. You have the story of um, a monk, I forget his name now, one of the Tang dynasty Chinese monks, who had spent years and years and years and years and years meditating in a monastery, probably doing much the same as we've been doing here. And after all of these years, he's getting nowhere at all, so he, gives, he says, sorry, I'm not going to, I can't, this is not for me. And so he leaves the monastery and he goes to live in a small hermitage up in the hills where he spends his day just uh, tilling the garden, taking care of the place, completely given up meditation. And one day when he is uh, tilling his uh, patch of radishes or whatever, his hoe uh, strikes a, a stone in such a way that the stone is ejected from the ground and flies across the garden and hits a bamboo pole and goes ping. And at that moment, he has great insight. <laughs> Another Dharma gate, the, the, the stone hitting the, the bamboo and going ping. In other words, even the most mundane thing for someone who has actually given up meditation, any sort of formal practice, can be what triggers this, this insight. So there's nothing um, in this world uh, that cannot serve as a Dharma gate. Um, we have to be careful, therefore, not to th divide the world between Buddhist and spiritual and high-minded things, but rather to recognize that by focusing on just that, we're liable to miss out on the, 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 the world in all of its multiplicity and banality and strangeness that is waiting to teach us something 
um, in every moment. So the whole of our phenomenal experience becomes a Dharma gate. And then the final of these four vows, the way of the Buddha, I vow to practice it. It seems to me that the image of the gate and the image of the path go very much together. And in fact, the idea that you enter the, that you, you pass through the gate and then you enter the path seems to me to follow rather, rather, rather organically. That the path is not only what takes us up to the gate, but perhaps more importantly, the gate is what directs us onto the path itself. Let me just try to illustrate all four with another fairly well-known koan, and that is the encounter between Bodhidharma, who's the enigmatic Indian monk who came to China probably in the middle of the 6th century and started teaching what is now called Chan or Zen. For many years, he lived up on Mount Song, which we mentioned yesterday or the day before, is where Hui Zhang came down to see Hui Neng. Bodhidharma lived in a cave on Mount Song and apparently stared at the wall for nine years. And so intent was he on staring at this wall, he even cut off his eyelids in order to, so he wouldn't fall asleep. I don't believe that. (laughs) But in any case, he did a long retreat in this cave. And one day, um, a Chinese uh, follower of his, a man called Hui Ko, came to see him. And it's snowing, at least this is how the story goes. It's snowing, and he climbs up to the cave. I've actually seen this cave, It's, it's quite a hike. And in winter, it would be very bitterly cold up there. Hueco climbs up to the cave entrance and to show his, in, his, his resolve, he cuts off his left arm. And there's a famous Chinese scroll painting of Hueco holding his arm in the snow. And again, I don't believe he did that either. But it's a, it's a manner of speech. Hueco then calls out to Bodhidharma. He says, Master, Master, Please set my mind to rest. And a voice comes out of the cave and it says, Okay, bring me your mind, I'll set it to rest for you. So Hueco then trails off through the snow, leaving a dripping trail of blood. And (laughs) some time later, the text doesn't specify how long, returns to the cave. And he calls out, I've searched for my mind everywhere. I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma says, Good, I set it to rest for you. (laughs) Now, uh, this is actually um, quite similar to uh, the idea of, of emptiness, the insight into emptiness, which is the, the ultimate unfindability of things that you find in the teachings of Nagarjuna and, and in many of the Indian texts. 
that Bodhidharma is somehow, again, if we look at this in the terms of the four vows, he's responding to the student's suffering. And the student's suffering is made very vivid in a way by this cutting off the arm, this despair to, to, to set his mind at rest. It's a very poignant image. Bodhidharma then gives him an instruction which basically enables him to let go of the affliction that was keeping him stuck, namely this idea that there was a mind, some kind of finite uh, knowing entity of some kind that was troubled. The more he looked into this mind, the more he came to realize that in fact there's nothing he can pin down and point to and say, that is my mind. There's something infinite in the mind, something um, that goes on forever. It's neither something, it's not nothing, it's this middle way. So in other words, Hueco's investigation of his mind becomes the Dharma gate through which he enters the path. He enters a stream of understanding. I mean, the text doesn't really go on much beyond the little story I told, but surely what is, um, is crucial to such a resolution is that, is, is that Hueco has broken through a particular obstacle that was causing him great grief and has found another way of being in this world. And in fact, Hueco goes on to become Bodhidharma's successor. He becomes the, the second uh, patriarch. So I think in, in all of, uh, of the, these um, vows, we can see somehow a, a process underlying them. We start with this uh, awareness of suffering. This leads then to a letting go of a certain affliction or blockage within us, a stuckness. That leads us through that letting go to an opening, a Dharma gate. And through that Dharma gate, we then arrive at a path. Now, what that seems to be is um, a version of another very famous Buddhist teaching, namely that of the Four Noble Truths. Because there too we start with suffering, we move on to craving, the second one. The third one is the stopping of craving, and the fourth truth is the path. And if we think of the Four Noble Truths not as Buddhist doctrines, life is suffering, doctrine one, the cause of suffering is craving, doctrine two, the cessation of suffering is the cessation of craving, doctrine three, the Noble Eightfold Path is the way to the cessation of suffering, doctrine four. If we put that aside and we look at how each of these truths was presented by the Buddha 
as, um, as an injunction to do something, a task. Each truth is a specific task to be, to be recognized, to be performed, and to be accomplished. This is all stated very clearly in the Buddha's first sermon. And so if we look at the four truths as four tasks, we find that the first truth is to fully know suffering. The second truth is to let go of grasping or craving. The third truth is to experience the stopping of that grasping. And the fourth truth is to create and to cultivate a path. In this way, we can also see why the Buddha laid them out in the sequence he did. Because one leads to the next, the second leads to the third, the third leads to the fourth. By fully knowing suffering, we begin to get to the roots of what inhibits us from acting for the welfare of ourselves and others, namely that closure, that stuckness. As that begins to fall away, we experience moments of stopping, or technically nirvana, which is not the end of the process, but actually very much like a Dharma gate. It's an open space where new possibilities become uh, open to us. And that new possibility, in the classic formulation, is the Eightfold Path itself. So, if we think of the Four Truths as the practice of four tasks and bringing them to some sort of fruition, it also has a kind of endlessness about it. We can see how that might well be what um, underpins or serves as the foundation for these four vows. If anything, the four vows ratchet up the, um, the task nature of this practice into a vow, into a commitment. So the four truths here become four vows, four commitments. In other words, more than just tasks but tasks to which you commit yourself. So, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Afflictions are endless, I vow to let go of them. Dharma gates are infinite, I vow to pass through them. And this is the, the way of the Buddha, I vow to practice it we find the same sequence, the same pattern. And we see that what's at stake here in this practice is not arriving at some shattering illumination called enlightenment, some transcendent vision into our true nature or something like that, although that may happen. I hope it does. But rather, we have to see that um, as part of a much more... Um, uh, a, a, a much more complex process that starts, in fact, with our opening up to the suffering of the world and then proceeding to, um, uh, to respond to that 
not by shying away from it or ignoring it, but actually allowing it to touch us in such a way that our very perspective on what life is about begins to change. And we become less and less preoccupied with getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't like. And that falls away, which revealing new possibilities of living here on this earth with others. Which, in the end, bring us into another way of life. And it's that way of life, I think, that uh, frames or contextualizes uh, this specific practice of meditation we're doing here. This is not an end in itself. This is rather um, a means to somehow incorporate this grander vision as enunciated in the four vows or in the four noble truths. Uh, to, to live otherwise, to not just continue as the creatures of our well-honed habits and, and attachments and fears, but to, to be willing to take risks, to be willing to live a more fearless life, to be willing to, uh, to really try to make a difference in some way in this world. So that's what I have to say this evening. Um, I had a couple of questions that from that were on the board. Um, this refers to what I said last week. Um, the questioner says, and the questioner is called Anon. <clears throat> I don't want to live like my head is on fire. Too much of that in the past nor do I want to live sucking on the teat. Too much of that in the past. <laughs> Is there a middle way? Um, I hope so. Um, <clears throat> but again, one shouldn't take these things too literally. Um, I do feel that the middle way um, is not... I don't feel that the middle way is a sort of comfortable compromise. Um, but actually it probably requires a great deal of struggle to arrive at it. And in fact, the, the, the way of the Buddha, I vow to practice it, it refers to the middle way. Uh, the, the Eightfold Path is the middle way. And from what we've seen this evening, it appears that, that to, to get there actually takes quite some struggle. It does require that one... Um, rethink what one is all about in a rather fundamental way. Now, whether that literally means that you feel as though your head is on fire, that might be overstating it, but I don't think we should underestimate um, uh, the fact that this is hard work, that we're countering in such a practice as this not only our own cultural and psychological habits, but in a sense uh, the whole drivenness of our neurobiology. And that's, um, that's a formidable opponent. I wondered if you could say something about how 
a seductive and hedonistic lifestyle can be when this breath could be your last and how to creatively engage with not being seduced. P.S. Especially if there is no God. <laughs> um, I, I sort of take this to mean... Um, well, if there is no God, if there is no future life, um, what's wrong with just um, living a life of pure, selfish self-indulgence, a, 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 a seductive and hedonistic lifestyle? What's wrong with that? The fact of um, that, that you've that this question is being asked on a meditation retreat. suggests that the questioner doesn't really fully believe it. Um, And I also don't think, at least it's not been my experience, that people adopt a seductive and hedonistic lifestyle uh, upon rational consideration. Having weighed up all the possibilities, I'm going to live a life of reckless abandon. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. So... I think the questioner is is posing a hypothetical question. Um, And also, I think we have to be careful not to be too too influenced by a rather otherworldly, renunciant um, streak that definitely runs through Buddhism. Um, I think there's a danger sometimes that we feel that if we're not giving everything, we're not giving things up, um, we're somehow not doing it right. That um, we need to somehow deprive ourselves of things. But there are some some very interesting passages in the early canon, um, particularly one passage in the Udana which is one of the shorter collections of the minor discourses, um, in which the Buddha seems to speak of the middle way um, as a middle way between the excesses of, um, of the world and the excesses of religion. Uh, he doesn't speak here that it's about avoiding you know, sensory indulgence on the one hand and... A self-mortification on the other. He actually describes self-mortification in this context as celibacy, um, pure livelihood, and uh, taking vows and virtues. Now, when you read that passage, you sort of go, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to be doing that. You know, being virtuous, taking vows, being celibate if possible, um, and and leading a pure life. And the Buddha seems to be saying that that too can be a trap. That too is just another thing to which we can become attached. And the middle way, I think, is peculiarly um, elusive because um, it's so easy to think that once I give up being a sensual, hedonistic person and then I become a holier and thou goody-goody Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Rastafarian, or whatever it is, 
I've somehow solved the problem rather than recognizing that what one has done is just switched one set of attachments for another. The middle path, at least in, in certain of these passages, uh, suggests um, not um, a necessary abandonment of pleasure. There's nothing particularly wrong in pleasure. Um, but on the other hand, uh, nor does it entail a kind of uh, commitment to uh, deprive myself of pleasure. This middle path is rather elusive. And um, I see really no big problem with enjoying oneself, enjoying the things of life. And again, that's, it's an element that you find, um, it's one of the elements that I like about, about Zen Buddhism. Uh, when you you read a lot of these stories about the, the, especially the, the masters of the Tang period, or you read the lives of some of these later monks and practitioners, and you don't have the sense, as you do sometimes when you read about the lives of the great arhats and so on, uh, that these are joyless people. In fact, there's a wonderful playfulness that seems to come from their practice, a wonderful a sense of the enigmatic, and at the same time also um, an ability to, uh, to engage in, in creative activities, uh, in poetry, in painting, uh, in art. And so much of the imagery is not dour, serious iconography, but rather almost the opposite of that, very light brushstrokes, a kind of a playfulness, a spontaneity, which to me speaks of a great sense of joy. There's a wonderful passage also, and this is in the Sangyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha says, um, do not think that the breakthrough to the four noble truths is accompanied only by suffering and pain. It is accompanied by happiness and joy even though it starts with dukkha, that doesn't mean that it is stuck at dukkha. If it were, then it would quite clearly be a recipe for some sort of gloom. But in fact, dukkha is what enables us to bring our lives to a deeper pitch, as it were, whereby we begin quite naturally to lose some of those habits that cause us to get stuck and rigid and uptight and afraid. And it's when those things begin to, begin to fall away that another way of living in this world opens up. The goal of this practice is not, I think, nirvana, but rather the opportunities that open up once these habits of mind begin to fall off and that another way of being in the world becomes possible. And if that's not a life that is uh, to some degree joyful, although without obviously ignoring the suffering that is also around us, um, then I wonder what it was really all about and all for. So in some senses it is a hedonism I mean, head, hedonism just means uh, 
uh, a seeking for well-being, for contentment, for pleasure. I think the difference is that we begin to find our well-being in places that are more uh, fulfilling rather than just getting transitory hits of pleasure every now and again. Thank you. I'm going to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.